Bonjour and Bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And we're finally doing a normal episode again. I know, I I was afraid today, I was like, oh god, what do I say again? I was afraid I'd forget, and I was like, no, 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 I do remember, because I was like, oh, creme de la creme makes me think of Aristocats. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Unless you're Eliza and you've you've never ridden a bike. (laughs) It's not my fault. I did actually ride a bike a couple months ago, and I I was terrified, like, I thought I would, like, slip up, but it was all in my mind. I I could do it, muscle memory. Learn to ride a bike. Yeah. But that was the first time I'd been on a bike in, like, maybe 10 years. Crazy. Uh, um, um, all right. So, uh, speaking of being incompetent, <laughs> <laughs> not his own fault. We'll get to it. Yeah. Um, but we're doing Charles the Sixth today. Um, Eliza has very much been looking forward to this king. She's been saying oh, yeah. it from the beginning. Yeah, it's, um, he's my, like, favourite. And after going through most of the, the regents of Charles VI, we're finally going to do the king himself. Um, now, this will be an interesting biography to do because we've already covered Charles' covered entire a lifetime. A lot of our regents live 10, 15 yeah. years beyond Charles' lifetime. So go back and listen to the five Regency of Madness episodes yeah, if you guys but... want uh, to get into detail about that stuff. But we're going to be summarizing things yeah. in this episode so that you, if you haven't listened to that, if you wanted to skip that, you can. This is better means you want to well. understand. No, well, I'll, I'll make it, I'll make it all easy to understand, but I will be oversimplifying some things. And part of that is because A, we don't have time and <laughs> to yeah. go over that, all that stuff again. And B, it's all really from Charles VI's perspective. And Charles VI, a lot of the time, doesn't know what's going mm. on. <laughs> So this Charles de Valois, uh, he -hmm. was born on the 3rd of December, 1368, to Joan of Bourbon and King Charles V of France. Um, And if Katie is listening, that makes him a Capricorn. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, He and his little... Wait, is he a Capricorn? Wait, what's 3rd of December? Like I'd know. Oh, no, sorry. He's a Sagittarius. He's a Sagittarius. Capricorn is late December. So his birthday soon. Yeah. And if you recall, he and his little brother, Louis of Orléans, were just two out of mm. nine children to survive into yeah. adulthood. Um, but despite health problems for, for him, uh, his wife and his children, Charles V, Father Charles, mm. um, was an incredibly wise and successful king. Yeah, and by the time he died in September 1380... France was on the up and up. Um, mm-hmm. It was being smoothly run by some very competent counsellors. And yes. it looked like it might soon win uh, the war against mm-hmm. England. Because as we all know, it's it's the 50 years war. It's not the 100 years war. Um, yeah. But Charles VI, as we know, was just 11 when his father died. Mm. So little Charlie, he was given... The customary coronation at the Cathedral of Reims about three mm-hmm. weeks later. I imagine the robe was quite big for him. Um, oh, I think that's very cute, though. Yeah, although it's he probably like would have got it. He probably up. would have got it specially they made. They got tailored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're not going to show um, him in oversized garments. 
Yeah, like they could have recycled the garments. Yeah, the crown probably would would have been too big though because they they oh, couldn't really. Maybe they put that, some but... padding under it. Some like yeah, you know. I'm imagining in the Sword of the Stone when Arthur is wearing the crown and, and it keeps slipping down. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that would so be it. That's and he's got the giant cloak as well. Uh, but of course, Charles legally needed a regent for the next mm-hmm. three years uh, until he reached the grand old age of fourteen. Uh, at which point people are supposed to be able to rule. Uh, but as things Crazy. panned out, Charles's regency continued on for a further five years after that, which I guess is pretty understandable. Yeah. Um, and the regency was presided over by his uncles, the Dukes of Anjou, Berry, mm. uh, Burgundy, and Bourbon, um, yeah. who we've previously been over. Uh, mm-hmm. All of these guys, except for Anjou, who was not there for very long, and then went to Sicily and died. Um, Oh, he don't matter. He doesn't matter so much. His son matters because his son marries Yolanda of Aragon. So go listen to her episode as well. Out of these uncles, Burgundy, thanks in part to his massive inheritance in eastern France and the Low Countries, um, Mm -hmm. he also married the Countess of Flanders as well, so he's got (laughs) Flanders. Um, He emerged as the preeminent regent, despite Mm. uh, being the younger of the brothers. Um, But yeah, that's something else we didn't emphasize as well. He's the youngest brother, uh, Burgundy, but he's the most powerful. Kind of crazy. He was also, he was his dad's favorite, to be fair. His dad, Uh, John John II. Um, If if we recall, John II, not the best decision maker that there was. (laughs) So from the perspective of Charles himself, the most exciting event of his regency was the arrival of his betrothed, the German princess Elizabeth of Bavaria, later called Isabeau, um, because it's more French. By the way, I don't know why she's called Isabeau instead of Isabella or Isabel. Because Isabeau sounds nicer. I've got into that. But I guess Isabeau is more distinctive. She's the the only Isabeau, um, I think, in, in the whole of... In the whole of uh, the people we're going we're gonna to talk about, at least, she's the only Isabeau. Um, Makes it easy for once. Yeah. So she arrives to France in July 1385, when, as we discussed in Isabeau's episode, Charles found her so beautiful that he insisted on pushing forward the wedding. Yes. This wedding, which was bankrolled by Burgundy, who had a lot to mm. gain from the Bavarian alliance. He's, he'd also married yep. two of his children, two Bavarians. Um it was the most splendid event in living memory for the people of Damn. France. Charles and Isabeau enjoyed extreme po- popularity from the from yes. the get-go. While Isabeau quickly proved herself a fertile myrtle, capable of Ooh. producing not just an heir, but also a spare and a spare spare as well. Nice. <laughs> um, as well as a couple of daughters to marry off for alliances. Charles became known by his people as Le Bien-Aimé, uh, the Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people of France would see him this way pretty much all the way until his death, to be honest. Oh, that's good. So even as his wife and the advisors around him descended into infamy, madness or no madness, the king of France was untouchable. And a lot of of the goodwill of the people of France that they afforded him, even as things went to crap, uh, can be attributed (laughs) to his, both his early years as king and nice. to the sacredness that the, king, the king is held up as, yeah, at this point in history. Because after all, the people didn't see much of him 
He's the man behind the curtain. He's the Wizard of Oz. Uh, (laughs) But but there was trouble in paradise, of course. Um, By the time Charles VI finally took the reins of power in November 1388, just before his 21st birthday, he found his kingdom's finances, which had been so well managed under Charles Mm -hmm. V and his skilled counsellors, was now in disarray, thanks to his uncle's continuous raiding of the the treasury. Bad, bad. So Charles VI uh, sought to reverse this by bringing back those counsellors, collectively known as the Marmosets, the little monkeys, um, (laughs) and kicking the uncles out. And this reversal for the uncles was triggered mainly by Burgundy, uh, wasting royal troops on a pointless war in Helders, uh, which uh, we went into in his episode, or Josh went into, I should say, in his episode. But basically, uh, Burgundy is using royal troops for his own... His own thing. ...aggrandizement, his own expansion of his own territory. And finally, Charles, after being sort of prodded by many people around him, including his Mm -hmm. brother finally decides all right enough's enough let's take your hand off the scale let's let the marmosets try to rule for a bit take your hand out of the bloody bag of money yeah the coin purse exactly so despite being demoted uh burgundy remained a powerful presence at charles the sixth court but as we've been over, it started looking like another of his nephews, Charles' little brother, Louis of Orléans, mm-hmm. uh, might surpass him as the right-hand man. So if Charles and Isabeau were the golden couple, then Louis of Orléans and his Italian wife, Valentina, were the what, silver couple. The black couple. sheeps? No, they were the silver couple. They oh. were like the... Yeah, they were the... the second the, the, place. The second place, but just as... Interesting and cool in their own right. Yeah. Um, So all of them uh, were highly regarded for their beauty and their love of the finer things in life. And they all got on like a house on fire at first. Why do it feel like I'm like listening to like, this is like medieval version of like Will, Kate, Harry and Meghan. (laughs) It kind of is in a way. And when I say they got on like a house on fire, that's maybe a rather insensitive metaphor for what what happens later. Uh, Now, now sadly, uh, we have to get to Charles's period of so-called madness, uh, which starts during a march to the Duchy of Brittany in uh, July 1392. So we went over the causes of Charles's campaign into Brittany in Philip of Burgundy's episode. Once yeah. again, it was a very long episode, um, but uh, <laughs> he was present on the campaign um, and uh, he had to take over when Charles was taken ill. But basically mm. the young king, uh, eager to get his hands dirty after years of molly coddling, uh, he launched mm-hmm. a punitive expedition into the territory of the Duke of Brittany, who, mm. on top of being an English ally, mm-hmm. had supposedly ordered the attempted murder of Charles's general, Olivier de Clisson. Ah, oh, yeah. This was the first and only military campaign that Charles himself initiated, by the way. Um, yeah. And I'm going to read Jean Foissard's account of what happened mm-hmm. on the road to Brittany. Um do you want the short version or the or the long version? Long version. 
Okay. I, I thought you might say that. Uh, where is Wassa? Here he is. I'm going to read from the, 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 the horse's okay. mouth. Okay, so Charles is on the march to Brittany. Mm-hmm. It was fearfully hot on the day when the king left Le Mans, as was to be expected, for it was in August. He says, he says August, other things say July, by the way. Um, Whatever. When the sun is naturally at its greatest strength. It should also be said, to help understand what happened, that while at Le Mans, the king had been overloaded with councils. He was not at all well, and had not been so all the year would have been suffering from head pains, eating and drinking little, and almost every day afflicted with heats and fevers. He was disposed to these by nature of his constitution, and very harmful to him they were. In addition, the attack on his constable, uh, this is Olivier de Clisson, mm. had plunged him into a state of melancholy and anxiety. Can't blame him. His doctors were well aware of all this, as were his uncles, but they could do nothing to improve matters because he refused to even listen to their advice against going to Brittany. It was told, and such was my information, that as he was riding through the forest of Le Mans, he was given a solemn warning which ought to have caused him to reflect and to call his council together before going farther there suddenly came towards him a man with bare head and feet, dressed in a mean smock of white homespun and looking more nearly mad than sane. He dashed out from between two trees, boldly seizing the reins of the king's horse, stopped him short and said, King, ride forward no farther, turn back, for you are betrayed. These words struck home into the king's mind, which was already weakened, and afterwards had a very much worse effect, for his spirits sank and his blood ran cold. At this, men-at-arms came up and beat savagely on the man's hands, which were holding the reins, so that he let go and was left behind, and they paid no more attention to his words than to those of a madman. This was madness indeed, in many people's opinion. They ought at least to have spent a little time on the man, finding out something about him, and questioning him to try to discover whether he was sane or insane, and what had made him utter that warning, and where it had come from. None of this was done, and they simply left him behind. No one knows what became of him, and he was never seen again by anyone who recognised him. But those who were near the king at the time certainly heard him speak the words. The king and his troop went on. It was about twelve o'clock when they cleared the forest and came into a fine open stretch of sandy heaths, the sun was dazzlingly bright, blazing down in its full strength. Its beams shone with such force that they penetrated everything. The sand was hot underfoot and the horses were sweating. No one was so fit or so hardened to campaigning as to not be affected by the heat. The chief lords rode separately, each with his company. The king was some little distance from the others, so as to get less dust. And then there's a basically a list of the people who are there, which we don't need to read necessarily. Uh, then, as they were all riding along like this, the page carrying the lance, the king's lance, forgot what he was about, or dozed off, as boys and pages do, through carelessness, and allowed the blade of the lance to fall forward onto the helmet which the other page was wearing. There was a loud clang of steel, and the king who was so close that they were riding on his horse's heels, gave a sudden start. His mind reeled, for his thoughts were still running on the words which the madman, or the wise man, had said to him in the forest. 
and he imagined that a great host of his enemies were coming to kill him. Under this delusion, his weakened mind caused him to run amok. He spurred his horse forward, then drew his sword and wheeled round on his pages, no longer recognizing them or anyone else. He thought he was in a battle, surrounded by the enemy, and raising his sword to bring it down on anyone who was in the way, he shouted, Attack! Attack the traitors! The pages saw the king's fury and and took fright, not without reason. They thought it was their carelessness which had made him angry, so they spurred their horses aside to avoid him. The Duke of Orléans was not far off. The king rode up to him brandishing his sword. He had lost all recollection of who people were, and he could not recognize his own brother or his uncles. When he saw him coming at him with drawn sword, the duke was naturally afraid and spurred hurriedly away with the king after him. The Duke of Burgundy was riding on the flank when, startled by the cries of the pages and the pounding of the horse's hooves, he looked across and saw the king chasing his brother with a naked sword. He was horror-struck and called out, Ho! Disaster has overtaken us! The king's gone out of his mind! After him in God's name, catch him! And then, fly, nephew, fly! The king means to kill you! <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing, but it is kind of I know of we shouldn't, but if you imagine it in a comedy setting, it would be. Like, if Monty Python did it. Yeah. It, it was certain that the Duke of Orléans felt far from reassured, and he was fleeing in earnest as fast as the horse could carry him, with knights and squires after them both. Everyone began shouting and turning their horses in that direction. Those who were farther off, riding on the flanks, thought they were chasing a wolf or a hare until they learnt the truth that something was wrong with the king. However, the Duke of Orléans escaped by turning and twisting, and also people came to his help. Knights, squires, and men-at-arms formed a circle right round the king, allowing him to tire himself out against them. The longer he raged about, the weaker he grew. When he came at any of them, knights or squires, they simply let themselves fall under his blows. I did not hear that any were killed in that affair, but he struck down quite a number, but none defended himself. Finally, when he was quite exhausted, and his horse was well, and both of them were drenched in sweat, A Norman knight called Sir Guillaume Martel, of whom he was very fond, came up behind him and flung his arms round the king, as he still waved his sword, and gripped him tight. While he was being held, all the others came up. His sword was taken from him, and he was lifted from his horse, and laid very gently on the ground, and stripped of his jerkin to cool him. His three uncles and his brother went to him, but he had lost all recollection of them, and gave no sign of affection or recognition. His eyes were rolling very strangely nor did he speak to anyone. And that is the first trigger of madness for Charles VI. Thought I might read the whole thing um, because it is his episode. Um, I can just imagine, though, like, when his brother's, like, racing for his life and the bloody burglar's going, like, run! He's going, (laughs) what do you think I'm... Like, I can imagine his head going... In his head going, what do you think I'm doing? (laughs) Burgundy just being very unhelpful in that situation. I know. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, Philip. All right. So at first it looked like Charles's first mental episode was just a one-off. Yeah. He did go comatose. He hmm. was, you know, taken back to Paris, shut away for a while, but he seemed to be recovering by the end of 1392. Um, and as we discussed in Louis of Bourbon's episode, his, his family on his mother's side, the Bourbons, had a history yeah. of sporadic mental illness. 
So um, yeah. there were methods of, of dealing with this kind of thing. Um, and as we discussed in both Louis of Orléans and Isabeau of Bavaria's episodes, Charles's mm. physicians counseled those around him yeah. to keep him stimulated and entertained with constant festivities. Mm. Um, which I wish my doctor would order that for me. That would be great. I know. Um, I, know. I think the best doctor's order I ever got was one time I so I split my lip open. And since I was like five, the, doc, the doctor knew that as a fire rod, I wouldn't be able to keep ice on my mouth for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, just get her to eat icy poles. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I know. Best doctor's advice ever. Tell me yeah. this ice box. Yeah. Lemonade flavor too. The increasingly extravagant parties and balls and hunts and banquets, mostly arranged by Do the queen. Not uh, help. Well, they seemed to work at first. Not on the bloody debt, solving that. They didn't help the treasury, no. Although I think the extent to which they affected the treasury has been exaggerated um, by people discredit, looking to yeah. discredit yeah. Isabeau. Yeah. Then the disaster happened. But then there came the most horrifying night of Charles's life. I think of a lot of their lives. The Bal des Ardents, otherwise known as the Ball of the Burning Men. Mm. So... Eliza, would you like to yeah. would you like to recap the ball of the burning man? Because we've talked about it like three times on the on the podcast already. Yeah. Okay. So they're having a party, but due to some of the men, including the king, deciding to dress up as like I don't know, like wild savage yeah. men. So they had like tar and feathers on. There was I think it was leaves. The guests were I think it was like leaves, yeah. leaves, whatever. But there was tar. Yeah. There was tar involved. <laughs> Yeah, and the guests were told, do not bring any open flame in. Like, don't bring any fire in. Like, you know, it's dangerous. But somebody, aka his own brother, forgot. (laughs) And la-di-da-di-da, walked in with that open flame and disaster struck. Because the men started catching on fire. Most, all of them died except for two. The king, who managed to jump under the... One of the ladies, come over. The, the Duchess of Berry, his aunt. Yes, yeah. opened her skirt and was like, "Come on, on my lad, I'll save you from these flames." And then the other guy survived because he jumped in a like a barrel of wine. Yeah, but the rest was grossly burned and died. I have a brief paragraph from Foissart about it. So he says, "Through the youthful gaiety of the Duke of Orleans, who could he have foreseen the mischief he was about to cause?" would not on any consideration have acted so. That's very generous to Orleon. Um, yeah. Being very inquisitive to find out who they were, so the men, their identities were obscured by the outfits. They all looked identical. Yeah. Being very inquisitive to find out who they were, while the five were dancing, he took one of the torches from his servants and holding it too near, set their dresses on fire. So Fasa said it was flax that, that they were covered with. Flax, you know, is instantly in a blaze and the pitch with which the cloth had been covered to fasten the flax, added to the impossibility of extinguishing it. They were likewise chained together. This is a detail that I hadn't seen before, before I read Fossil. Chained together, and their cries were dreadful. Some knights did their utmost to disengage them, but the fire was so strong that they burnt their hands very seriously. So yes, um, Charles hides under the skirt. Everyone looking on, including the queen, is probably horrified and traumatized by this entire thing. Yeah. God, you'd have nightmares ever. Yeah. Not least, of course, Charles. Um, So Charles, from this point, goes into his second bout of psychosis. And from this point on, 
it gets worse and worse. Yeah, who can blame him? Some historians have speculated it might have been it might have been schizophrenia. Others say porphyria. Um, a popular recent assessment says bipolar. But Charles's diagnosis is beside the point. Best historical practice is to report the symptoms that the chroniclers have set down for us, yeah. not to rush to any conclusions. So these symptoms include we've got the most famous one, which is the glass delusion. Yeah, um, the fragile glass. So a lot of these symptoms are recorded early on in the, the mental illness, and we yeah. don't know what things lasted and what things went away over time. Yeah. But glass delusion was a significant oh. early one. Yeah. And yeah, he came convinced his body was made of glass and that yeah. the slightest thing could shatter him. Yeah. Well, there's like this lady, uh, also aristocratic, who became convinced there was a glass piano inside her. Hmm. Yeah. That and same thing. Charles actually had iron bands sewn into his clothes so that they, they kept him stiff and upright so he wouldn't shatter. Yeah. He also refused to bathe or change his clothes. It's probably related, probably him thinking he's yeah. too delicate. And also, at another point, when addressed as King Charles, he replied, insulted, that his name is not Charles, his name is George. Um... <laughs> And uh, some uh, accounts claim that he claimed he was was Saint George, and that he 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 um, his coat of arms was not the fleur de lis. His coat of arms was an impaled lion, oh, not a dragon. When not believing he was made of glass and called George, and yeah, maybe he thought he was slaying dragons as well. Um, he was uncharacteristically violent and vulgar. He recoiled from his wife, often in favor of other women, which had not been him before. He, yeah. he was very much a monogamous man prior to yeah. his illness. And one of these women was Valentina Visconti, his sister-in-law, mm. who found herself the subject of unwanted attention while the king was in his madness. Yeah. Now, I won't get too in-depth into the events of 1400 to 1420, as we've covered them in plenty of detail in the Regency of Madness. Yeah. So while Charles dips in and out of lucidity, Philip of Burgundy, who's once again taking the powers of this regent. He dies, and Charles's brother Louis of Orléans takes charge in Paris, while John the Fearless, uh, Philip mm. of Burgundy's son, is finding his feet as the new Duke of Burgundy. Mm. Then we get the escalating rivalry between these two, as Orléans manages to outmaneuver John the Fearless. Uh, but in the mm. process, Orléans becomes just as ruinous to the treasury as Philip of Burgundy had been. Yeah. In particular, he purchases the Duchy of Luxembourg, uh, probably mostly with royal funds, um, it, yeah. in order to like kind of bother Burgundian territory. Um, and because this makes Orléans extremely unpopular among the people of Paris, John the Fearless mm. ends up being able to justify ordering his cousin's murder. So Louis of Orléans, as we know, was murdered in the streets of Paris on the night of the 23rd mm. of November, 1407. Mm. King Charles's reaction to his brother's death is complicated by his poor health. John the Fearless made sure to do this when Charles wasn't lucid, because if he had been lucid... Yeah, he, when he like wasn't lucid, he probably didn't even know what they were saying or like didn't quite understand or, like you know couldn't comprehend yeah and from this point when charles isn't like delusional or, or catatonic his self-confidence has been so weakened that he essentially oh. goes along with whoever happens to be in control of the royal household at the time i guess he just doesn't trust himself mm. 
Like, I know it's it's so it's so oh it's Sad. devastating. Because I feel like he probably would have been a good king if he hadn't had it. Like that. yeah, and more often than not, the person in charge of the royal household during this period was Isabeau. No. Oh, a duke. Which John. one? Yes, Very John the Fearless. His own brother's murderer is now in charge. Mm. And he manages to successfully bully the other lords into accepting his rule. And Char- mm. all Charles wanted was for everyone to get along and oh. make peace. And John the Fearless used this tendency to manipulate the king into forgiving him. God, he's like Viserys Targaryen. Yeah. And campaigning for numerous uh, shallow reconciliations which only frustrated the other lords of France and led them to declare war on John the Fearless. The anti-Burgundy faction, uh, now led by the king's nephew, Charles of Orléans, the son of the murdered Orléans, and his father-in-law, Bernard of Armagnac, as well, who both have episodes. Oh. Uh, <laughs> to cut a very long story short once again, we know the tables did turn eventually. John the Fearless yeah. ends up getting murdered by Tanguy du Chastel, in the presence of the Dauphin, the future Charles yeah. VII, on the bridge of Montreux. Once again, unclear whether Charles VII actually ordered that, or whether it was just a series of unfortunate events for John the Fearless, but uh, mm-hmm. we will get he to that, spe- that speculation for sure in Charles VII's ooh-la-la. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yes. But yeah, Charles VII had lured John the Fearless there for a supposed peace talk. Ugh, that's the worst kind when you do it for a t- Exactly. Yeah. But far from leading to victory over the Burgundians, this leads John the Fearless's mm. son, Philip the Good, the, the to constant. double down on the Civil War by siding with King Henry V of England, mm. who, guess what, has recently won the Battle of Agincourt and is busy mm. occupying Normandy. Riding a high. Yeah. So, yeah, Philip the Good basically says Burgundy is no longer French, where, well, they say that Burgundy is French, but. We support the real king of France, who is also the king of England. So the darkest part of the Hundred Years' War is also the last chapter in Charles VI's life. Mm. On the 1st of December, 1420, 52-year-old Charles enters Paris on horseback, uh, side by side with his new son-in-law and heir, Henry V of England. Mm. This came thanks to Henry and Burgundy's massive coup at the Treaty of Troyes, Mm. which had been signed reluctantly by the Queen in her husband's stead. Charles and Isabeau's daughter, Catherine of Valois, had been married to Henry Mm -hmm. V and was already pregnant with Henry VI at this point. But she was about to depart with Henry for England, where she'd remained the rest of her life. And so Charles never met his grandson. As we know, however, Henry V never became the King of France. In a shocking turn of events, two years after the Treaty of Troyes, the otherwise healthy Henry died, possibly of dysentery, mm. during a siege just outside Paris. How old was Henry? I believe he was then? about 30-ish. Damn. He was young. And Charles died just six weeks later, on the 21st of October, 1422. Um, so Charles is mid-50s. Um yeah. He died in the Hôtel de Saint-Paul in Paris, which for the last 30 years had gradually turned into his own personal asylum ward. Um, Mm. By the time of his death, Paris was under the control of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, led by the Duke of Bedford, who we also have an episode on, 
And Queen Isabel was either unwilling or unable to leave her residence for the funeral. Yeah. So the regent in Paris, the Duke of Bedford, so Henry V's younger brother, John, he oversaw the King of France's funeral, which yeah. not a single French prince attended because they were all yeah. either away or they'd been alienated and they were on the Dauphin's side. So sad. Yeah. So ends the tragic life of Charles VI of France with his disowned son, Charles VII, and his infant grandson, Henry VI, as his disputed successors. Mm. So it'll, it'll take another six years for Joan of Arc to appear and start setting things right, and the Hundred Years' War will continue for another 31 years. Um, officially. It's kind of vague as to when it actually st- stops. Um, but <laughs> with all of that said, it's time to get into Enchanté for Charles VI. Yay! Enchanté. Okay, Eliza, I'm going to send you a 19th century portrait of okay. King Charles VI. Um, okay. I couldn't find who the artist was. You sure you can find the artist? It feels like I could. I'm like, that's the one thing I'm kind of decent at is finding shiz people other people can't find. You're more than you're more than welcome to try. Um, oh, I would uh, hunt it, it down. If you do hunt it down, I'll put it in the WordPress um, to credit the artist. But the artist is more, almost certainly died a hundred years ago, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 they're not going to get mad. Oh my god, he looks so melancholy. He does. He like, does. Oh, in his little hat. Yeah. It's like a hat scarf. Do you notice something different about this portrait compared to other portraits? He's sitting down with no... Yeah, they're all no, sitting um, down, I think. With no um, sword or belt. Yeah, he's got no sword, no orb, no scepter. Yeah. He's just a dude. He is wearing the Order of the Star, yeah, uh, which is the order that John II founded, which we also saw Charles V wearing. No, not Charles V. Oh, no. We saw... We saw someone wearing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's got the fleur de lis in the background, which is rather nice. Yeah. A little angel. A little angel on it. By the way, Charles the Sixth took as his symbol a, a winged white heart. It's like a white oh, stag with wings. Because he just liked it. <laughs> I think it oh, shows a like a like youth, virtue, purity... That kind of so thing. he was like, I couldn't get the unicorn or Pegasus, so I'll go for the flying stag. I kind of like it. I like the flying stag. <laughs> now we've got a coronation depiction by Jean Fouquet. Classic coronation Yay! depiction. Oh, it is very classic. Which just it's has just flirtily like, oh, yeah. vomit everywhere. Oh, and they they show him, they really do capture him of being looking little, like his face. Yeah, he looks very youthful he and angelic. Young. Angelic as he well. He does. He's a little Very angel. Beloved. Poor little Charles. Um, he doesn't know what's coming. Um, oh. Then we get to the dark side. Um, I've got a depiction from Foissart's Illuminated Chronicles. Um, I got two two pictures actually. One Yay. of the initial madness in the in the woods of Le Mans, and one of the Bal des Ardennes, the two big events. Um, mm. And they're very detailed images. Oh, wow, they are. And you see mm. him and he's with the sword in the air. Oh, and you can even see which person was what, which bearer was the one that fell asleep. Yeah. Yeah, they got It's very detailed. Oh, and you can even see Le Mans in the background. Oh, yeah. And in the Bal des Ardennes image. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, they're on fire. You can see 
Way on the right-hand side, you can see the guy dousing himself in the wine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then way on the left-hand side is the king. Oh, yeah, he is. There's two ladies and he's kind of peeping out from between them. Yeah, uh, yeah, Looking yeah, really yeah. scared. It's really yeah, sweet and, and horrifying. <laughs> um, and then the, there's four men in the middle who are uh, burning to death. Burning. Yeah. Lord. And where's his? Where's Louis? I think Louis is at the back there in in. Is he the, the one the, holding it? The, the pink brown trousers. Now. He's holding. He's holding. Yeah, in the brown. He's holding the long stick. And the guy's the like room. next to him's like, "What are you doing? <laughs> what? What are you doing?" There's also a dog that's like, "What is going on?" Yeah. Just barking at. Well, at them. least the dog's not on fire. I'd be devastated yeah. if he did that. And the people still playing music. Yeah, the oh. people are still playing music. <laughs> Yeah, I think these sort of images are Would not like necessarily they're they're, sh- they're showing different events that are chronologically yeah, you know, yeah, not yeah, happening yeah, at the yeah. same time, all in the same image, which yeah. is what medieval images do. It's very confusing <laughs> for a modern onlooker. I do um, like the wall and even like the gold decorations; they're nice. So this last image is potentially the most uh, significant. It's the uh, most famous contemporary depiction of Charles. And it's once again an illuminated manuscript. So it shows him talking soberly with his advisor, Pierre Salmon, as he rises from his sickbed. Uh, The image is taken from a book of kingly advice that Salmon produced, the dialogues, in which he records what he has learned as an advisor to the king. At the end of the book, he talks about his heartfelt wish that a cure to the king's illness might be Aww. found. Yeah. Shows that they really did love him. They really did love him. And people really felt for him. And there's um, also a dog and a monkey? Yeah. That being said, you know, it does help that he's the king. Uh, yeah. <laughs> people aren't usually this nice about mental illness. I mean, if, even if, yeah. if we looked at, if we look at the madman in Foissa's story, yeah, he's just kind of left true, by true. the side of the road and people just ignore him. Or even in today's society, lunatic. people yeah. still aren't mm. that accepting. Yeah. Okay, the one in the corner, though, has a white Smurf hat. The one who's next to the monkey, the dog. Oh, that is a magnificent hat. It's yeah. a weird... Sort of scrotum smurf hat. Scrotum <laughs> smurf hat. <laughs> we'll cut that out. Um, but yeah, yeah um, for those wondering what we're talking about, this is the this is Charles VI Wikipedia image. It's sort of a zoomed in version of this, which just shows his face. Yeah. But the full image is quite magnificent as well. It's also got some lovely um, decoration around the the edges with peacocks and that sort of thing. So those are the main images that I have of Charles. Um, I mean, as harrowing as his his illness is, he is yeah. still reigning in something of a golden age for France of mm. um, learning. We got Christine de Pizan, who he and his wife sponsored, and art as well. Like most of the images that I've shown are either contemporary or just after uh, he reigned. Yeah. We're really starting to see a buttload of images. I just chose like the top five ones. So from this point on, basically, not only are we going to get contemporary portraits, I'm no longer going to have to use 19th century portraits after this point, but we're really edging towards the Renaissance uh, in a big way. Also, I found the artist. I found the artist of the portrait in two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) What's his name or her name? Is it Guillaume Saint 
Valerie, I don't know, can't say French. We'll put it on the WordPress. <laughs> so how do we do on Junte for Charles? It's a bit tricky, isn't it? Always give him good luck. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, well, I think, I mean, like, considering I knew who he was, I'd say yeah, he's he left gets... lasting impact. I know it might not be the most favourable because it's to do with his mental illness. Yeah. But he, he gets is, He gets top remembered. marks for infamy, I think. Yeah, which... Yeah, we marched. We've done that for other kings. Have they been really? Oh yeah, we did that for uh, John the First, the baby king. Yeah, Fredegund. Oh, we did it in a big way for Fredegund. Um, Yeah, but Charles. I mean, Charles is a step above Fredegund in that we actually have loads of contemporary stuff and loads of stuff that he left behind. True, true. That being said, it's hard to credit him with any of this. A lot of this is people around him producing this stuff. He, at a certain point, is not directly patronizing any of this it's all people around him and we've given those people credit for that in the regency of madness episodes but the only reason why they were even become remembered themselves of powers because they had the chance due to his mental health to be in control so if he had um, been perfectly sane the entire time like perfectly lucid it like he'd never had the mental illness they might not have been remembered quite as much I mean, this whole period is like, I think... Crazy times. Crazy times, but also such well-documented times that everyone yeah, is, is probably doing well in Enchante, I would say. Yeah. I feel so. I want to give him high just because he's like one of the few kings I did know. You're more than welcome to give him high marks. He's not getting full marks, but he's oh, not yeah. getting low. He's not getting low marks. Oh, yeah. I think he's above five because like mm. I want to give him like eight. I think it's because like, not just because I really love him, but just because I actually knew about him. So that yeah. already shows that legacy that even I know about him. Yeah. I think if you're, again. if you're going to pick any round to give him marks, just because you love him, I think Day is that round. Oh, um, if I could, I'd give him like a hundred out of 10, but you know, can't do that. Give him an eight. Okay. So you give him an eight. I think I'll give him a, cause I, I do think it's above five, but I don't think it's, as high as you give him, so I think I'm. I think I'm going to give him a six. Okay. Is that okay? Do you forgive me? Never. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a total of fourteen for Anjante, which is honestly pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. I think I just have a soft spot for someone with like mental illness because of my whole family history of mental illness. So you know. We knew this would happen. <laughs> You've been saying it for 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 for. Yeah. Uh, years. Um, yeah, so. I've got a soft spot for those. So moving into On Guard, it might be more difficult to justify giving Charles high marks <sighs> in this You round, know me, I'll try. <laughs> you, you will try. On Guard. Unfortunately, despite how long he reigns, Charles VI gives us almost nothing to work with in On Guard. There sure. is, of course, a bit of promise with him kicking out his uncles in 1388. But equally, I mean, A, he's kind of just putting other guys in charge. Granted, they're more competent guys, but... He knew that. He's still very much only just starting to get to grips with things. And I could also detract points for Charles for taking so long to end the Regency, which... Come on, could you, like, come on, I feel that like I would do that too. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, true. Yeah, that's just not... That being said... People, I think, generally did grow up faster in, in, in this time period, um, just out of necessity, because your life was so much shorter. Maybe he just wanted some passionate time with his wife. <laughs> they already had children by this point. 
Yeah, um, exactly. He spent those years. Oh, he was busy. He was too busy. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't want to bloody rule when he could spend have a lovely honeymoon time with his wife. Look, he's definitely going to get high marks in Lovey on Throne, so um, he's gonna he's gonna have that to his credit. So that's good for Charles. Yeah. So the Regency was very bad for the French people, and yeah. but not only that, it had imbued Charles with a sense of complacency and a weakness of character that wasn't just present during his periods of madness. Charles was often a pushover, unfortunately, in moments where it really mattered. And his only instance of actually initiating a uh, a military campaign was the one with the Duke of Brittany. And it was A, done partly out of spite. My favourite type. B, everyone advised against it. And C, it ended with him having a mental breakdown and having to abandon the campaign while his uncle... Okay, can't say that's his fault. Can't say that his fault, but that's the one thing he initiates. It's like that and his wedding are the the two things that he initiates. And the marmosets, yeah. But I mean, the marmosets is... You could also credit the marmosets with that because they're sort of prodding Charles, Charles into that, yeah. It's not like Charles sort of came up with that out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I do love how he kicked a campaign just for spite. I'm like, oh, pettiness and spitefulness. I love that. So under Charles, France reaches its lowest point in the Hundred Years' War. And while you could argue it's not his fault, that hasn't yeah. been an excuse we've applied with any other king in this category. That's because none of them had mental illness! That we know of. Yeah, that we know of, exactly. I mean... It seems harsh, but the reality is it's hard to find anything to award him points for it on guard. Like, Okay, I, think I com- feel as though he definitely though deserves a point, though, at least for his wedding. That was pure selfish gains, having that wedding early. I will say this. I don't believe he deserves as low a mark as the do-nothing kings, because he does have that four years, at least, of relative agency. Um yeah. So he was like putting people in power who were doing stuff. I mean, the marmosets. He was, yeah, and that's part of that's part of being a king yeah, is being is a good delegating how to choose good people, choosing good people. Yeah, and and also Charles VI is is one of the only kings in a while who hasn't started his reign by purging everyone. Yeah, that is partly nice. that's because he was young and you know he didn't really have con- yeah control over that. Anyway, but even but- once he got into control, he decided not to. He actually yeah, yeah. brought some of them back, which is a change. He also held his uncles to task for their corruption um, at first. True. Like, the Duke of Berry had, was so corrupt. And yeah, him he, and his love of books. There was this whole investigation into his dealings in the south of France when the king randomly showed up one day and Berry's like, ah, hide the I evidence. Love <laughs> I love that. That is like, like a, you know, when they do like a surprise drug raid. So he is holding people accountable. But that I think that's more of a Lévy point than an on-card point. Yeah, um, true. This is about selfish wins. And Charles, unfortunately, is not only... Not a selfish person. He's not a selfish person, which is to his credit in Lévy. And we'll get to that. Yeah, true. But it's not great here. It's not great yeah. here. Yeah. I think I like, I'm giving the point for, I like that he like was like, I need the wife now. Yeah, but he's too, even when he's not mentally ill, he's too ready to give away power, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The highest thing we gave a do-nothing king was, like, three. Okay. I honestly think Charles is around that that mark. He will make up these marks in other rounds, I think, but this, I think, has to be his lowest. Yeah. I I might even give him two. It's... 
It's also just think how horribly France suffers. And it doesn't matter that it's not his fault. It it it, it happens. This is the, the, the worst part of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, okay. I hmm. guess I'll give him a three. Okay. I think I might go two, to be honest. Okay. Um, So that is a five for On Guard. Moving on to Voulez-vous. Yes. Voulez-vous? It can be easy to think of Charles as a perfect golden boy before his madness. And while this is how many people in France did perceive him, the reality is, as ever, more complicated. Especially, and I'm going to maybe burst a bubble for you here, Eliza, especially if you happen to be Jewish in 1394, when Charles, he ordered the expulsion of all Jewish people from the royal domain. Yeah. I thought they'd already done that. Okay, so this had been done in Philip IV's reign, but then his son, Louis X, had ordered ordered the Jews back, yeah. This is the permanent uh, expulsion of the Jews. Now, it could be argued, and historians have argued, that because this happens technically after Charles's, uh, after the the Madness in the Woods and the Bal des Adorns. Oh! uh, Oh, yeah, you can't tie... But it happened... But it happened like a, a year after when Charles is supposed to have recovered again. So he was lucid at this stage. Um, but often people blame this on Queen Isabeau. Um, oh, like she remember. she told the king to do this. Um, this is, according blame to the account, the, the account of um, a monk of Saint-Denis, Michel Pantoins, uh, makes it explicit that the, uh, the queen insisted the king sign the ordinance of expulsion. So I think Isabeau is kind of being used as a... a, Scapegoat. Maybe as a scapegoat again. But remember that many at the time would have viewed the expulsion of the Jews as a pious act. So it's it's unclear whether this is disparaging to Isabeau or not. Either way, this Jewish expulsion is a big stain on Charles's character from a modern perspective. Um, Yeah, we've always taken away points in Voulez-vous for... Um, anti-Semitism, yeah. Um, yeah. Aside from this, I think most of Charles's point deductions in Voulez-vous will simply be because he was incapable of making things better for his people. Yeah. Because he was... He was when loose, he was in command of his loose. faculties and wasn't being deceived by his advisors, Charles consistently acted with selfless compassion, the like of which you rarely see in, in Kings. So... Ooh. During his lucid moments, he spent a lot of his time trying to undo the damage that had been done or ensure that he couldn't do as much damage the next time the madness took him. Of course, people just ignore that. In Isabeau's episode, Katie brought up the theory that Isabeau and her children moved out of the Hotel de Saint-Paul, the king's permanent residence, at the insistence of the king because he wanted to spare them the danger and trauma that they might experience sharing a home with him. That, I think, shows a great capacity for, yeah, of self-sacrifice is. for Charles. That is. So even though Charles was nice in his lucid moments and his subjects loved him unconditionally, this doesn't change the fact that you probably wouldn't choose his reign as a time to live. Yeah. Like, if it was just living with him, like, in a house. Living with him, but probably. I think living in Paris generally, like, sucked <laughs> in this period. I feel so it sucks now. Bloody bed bugs. Yeah, but you don't today. You don't have re- rebellions and massacres and 
there was they have lots of riots. Like remember the Cabochian? Yeah, but the these are riots in which hundreds, if not thousands, of people get killed. Like, yeah, yeah. this know. is bad times. Um. For France, France. they just love a riot. And then by the end of his reign, they're being ruled by English people. Yeah, it's not great. Can you think of anything worse? (laughs) So that's what I have for Volevo. Poor Charles, he tries. He tries so hard. My little baby. (sighs) Depresses me that I can't give him high Mm. marks. We do give marks for positive character, even if it doesn't bear out in improving people's lives. Oh yeah, he'll get a mark for that. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think he's once again for me is and I, I I'll I'll give him higher than I gave for on guard. I think I'm gonna give it a three. Okay, yeah, I'll go three too. Okay, so <sighs> I got slightly higher than than on guard. He's got a six for Volevo. Okay, so moving on to Ulala. <gasps> Ulala. I don't know how we're gonna score this. This is very tricky because obviously his madness is a big scandal. If you look at the broad sweep of history, it's been a thing that's been sensationalised, like, particularly if you think, like, Victorians and, like, like mm. those sorts of... Like, and again, the Victorians do love their, like, madness and, like, you know... They, their they love their madness and their depravity. They love, and, their, they love their darkness. They're, yeah. Like, <laughs> the whole gothic vibes going on. Yeah. I think it's a thing that's like reverberated through history as like a scandalous thing. And I don't think it's scandalous. Yeah. I've I've been thinking about this for a very long time. Um, of how do we portray Charles's mental illness? And I, I hope I've gone by uh, about it in a very respectful yeah. way in this episode. Um yeah. because, you know, Eliza's got a history of mental illness in her family. I definitely have yeah. a history of that as well. Um, not personally, but people in my family once again and friends um it's a common thing (laughs) turns out yeah and i'm sure many of our listeners uh have uh, you know sensitivity around this issue i will mention charles's mistress uh, here (laughs) (laughs) um so her name is odette de chandiver um and uh she was actually um supposedly placed in charles's uh way by his wife Isabeau. Oh. Because Isabeau uh, wanted to, she was, um, she felt very uncomfortable around her husband. She didn't want to, you know, do her marital duties with him. Um, And he couldn't stand the sight of her either when he was in his uh, bouts of madness. So So Isabeau essentially appoints Odette as a kind of carer for Charles. Who also had a daughter with him. Um, Oh. So they're definitely doing the nasty. Oh, it'll illegitimate. But uh, eventually, Isabeau had Odette ripped away from Charles again um, because mm. she was uh, getting too politically too powerful. chummy. Yeah, mm. yeah. So Odette is a bit of a flash in the pan, but they do have one daughter together. Still. Um. But yeah, there's a conversation. There's definitely a conversation to be had about whether or not Charles is madness is much illness should be considered scandalous because we don't want to sensationalize it obviously um i i think he should get points not for being mentally ill but for the things that happen surrounding that mental illness yeah the like uh like how isabeau then became seen as like a bad queen because she threw the parties try to help him but it was seen due to the results of that 
yeah. what became of. So that being said, a lot of it is not his people. fault. I know it's other people doing doing crazy, scandalous but things. But they're trying to do it. Him. At least with that one, they, it was because they were trying to help him. <clears throat> but then I again, guess, not his but... fault. Yeah, I know. I thought I'd have that a lot for scandal, yeah. but when you think about it, you go, oh, "No, I can't do that mental illness." <clears throat> like, no, that's not scandalous. That's just something that happens to people. Devastates me because I love a scandal. Yeah. If we lived 100 years ago when there was baby less awareness around this, we would probably give him a 10 out of 10. Yeah. I'm happy to, like, split the difference and give him, like, a middle <gasps> mark. I feel that the scandal would be England. That happening in him, that is a scandal. What do you mean? Well, England basically took over. Yeah. At least That's in the scandal. North. Scandal. Yeah. Yeah. That's scandalous. But again, it's not him. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's Isabeau and the Duke of Burgundy in control. Yeah, true. Well, Isabeau arguably not really in charge because she's kind of getting her arm twisted every which way. Oh, would it be him, like, basically disowning his son? Yes and no. The thing is, so Charles VII was born in 1403. That's 10 years after the first bout of madness. Oh, wow. So so Charles Charles VI Never. and Charles VII would have barely known each other. Yeah. Yeah. You just known him so it's kind like of, as a father he never of a, saw. Cause... Yeah, it's kind of a moot point because it's, yeah, yeah, they barely knew each other. True. Okay, yeah. well, what are you thinking of giving? See, it's it's very very tricky, but I think I might have to. Uh, I think I. It's weird because um, in order to re- be respectful and not sensationalize the mental illness, we have to give him a lower mark. Yeah, which feels a bit strange. Um, I think this this whole episode just goes to show that this competition was not designed with Charles the Sixth in mind. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's think. So. If we did sensationalize the mental illness, it would be like a 10. If we don't, and we just account for all the other things, like the mistress, other stuff that he had personal agency of, that'd maybe be like a like a two or a three. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. He'd be like standard virtuous king. So yeah, it would be. maybe in order to split the difference, we give him like a seven. Does that make sense? I mean, splitting the difference between two and ten. It's like about a seven, seven point five, or an eight. Okay. I don't know. That's just my. I suppose the scandal would be the legacy. Yeah, it's partly the legacy. Um, Like not a good legacy, but it's still something. Yeah, I suppose in a way it does bring awareness of mental health issues. Even back in those times, they did it did exist. Yeah, I'll I'll do a seven. Okay. Seven puts him just below nephew murdering. So. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. So that is a fourteen for Ulala. Okay. Tell us if you think we're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that is now in the scoreboard. So let's move on to La Vie on Throne. La Vie on Throne. It's not looking too bad for Charles in this round. Yeah, it was around raining for a long time. He was around. He existed for a while. <laughs> So he reigned from the 16th of September 1380, when his father died, to the 21st of October 1422, when he died. 
which is 42 years, one month, and five days. Damn. So, yeah, that is 7.86 points nice. uh, towards his V on Throne co- uh, score. Then his children by Isabeau, outside three sons and one daughter who died as infants. Yeah. I'll just talk about the mm. ones who lived a bit longer than that. Yeah. But first of all, we've got Isabella, Isabella of Valois, mm-hmm. um, who yeah. she married Richard II of England. Yeah. And then Richard II got cooed and imprisoned and died. Yeah. And then Isabella was kind of just stuck in England. <laughs> um, but then she eventually got bought, brought back to France and true, she was true. married to her first cousin, Charles of Orléans. True. And they, by all accounts, got along really well, even though she was 17 and he was 13 when they got married. Um, but uh, a year or two later, Isabella gave birth to a daughter and died in childbirth mm. in 1409. So not outliving her father. Yeah. Then next we have Joan of Valois. We didn't. We haven't really heard anything from her. Yeah. Um, she's one of the less talked about children. She married John V, Duke of Brittany, as okay. part of the peace talks uh, oh, that yeah. ended the, the, uh, the conflict with Brittany. Um, and she died in 1433, so in her 40s. So she did outlive her father, so that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Then we have Marie, another mm-hmm. not often talked about child, Marie yeah. of Valois. She became an abbess, so she joined oh. the church, and she eventually died of the plague in 1438. Then we've got Michelle, Michelle of Valois, which is a weird name yeah, for a royal. For the time. Seems like a very modern name. <laughs> yeah. So Michelle married Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy. Hmm. Interestingly, but she died in 1422 and she produced no children. So she died literally. No, she had no children at all. Um, I thought she could have died in childbirth. The child died with her. No, she was still, they, they basically just got married and she was still a teenager when she died. Yeah. Um, She also died just before her father. Oh yeah. Like the same year. Um, Mm. So yeah, that's a bit sad. Then, we finally have a, a, a surviving son. Yeah. Not surviving as in survived his father, but survived, you know, into sort of adulthood. We got Louis of Guienne, the Dauphin, yeah. before he died as a teenager uh, in 1415. Yeah. And he married John the Fearless's daughter, Margaret. But once again, they had no children. Yeah. Um, then we've got John of Touraine, who became the Dauphin for like a year and a half. <laughs> after yeah. that but then also died uh potentially poisoned mm. and he married oh. uh J- Jacqueline of Ainort who then ended up marrying Humphrey Duke of Gloucester mm. um yeah until he mm-hmm. divorced her and that kind of ruined the Anglo-Burgundian alliance or helped to ruin it mm. um but that is a story for the last Regency of Madness episode which you guys yeah couldn't listen to uh then mm-hmm. we've got uh catherine catherine of valois yes yes uh she does survive she lives to 1437 mm-hmm. she marries first of all henry v of england um mm-hmm. thanks to the treaty of Troyes, and she was the mother of henry the sixth and after henry the fifth's death catherine was shunned as a regent in england uh, for yeah. obvious reasons and she ended up actually eloping with an obscure Welshman named Owen Tudor. Oh. Hey! Yeah. So she became the mother of Edmund Tudor, who was in turn the yeah. father of 
Henry the Seventh of England, the first yeah. Tudor king. So that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> now the Tudors don't get their claim to the English throne through Catherine because she's a French yeah. princess, of course. They get it through yeah. Margaret Beaufort, whom her yeah. son Edmund Tudor marries. So then we've got the youngest baby son. We've got Charles the Seventh. Mm. Um, Charles the Sixth's only surviving son and the subject of our next episode after mm-hmm. we do Joan of Arc, of course, because she's more important. Um, and uh, <laughs> Charles the Seventh, I, I won't spoil when he dies, but obviously he outlives his father. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So how many children is that, Eliza? Have you, have you been keeping track? How many surviving children? Um, one, one, two... One son and one son, yeah, and then daughter, daughter, three daughters: Joan, Marie, oh, and Catherine. Yeah, yeah three daughters yeah, survive. Was... Not Michelle and Isabel, sadly. Yeah, so that is four surviving children overall, which is six point seven five points. Nice. You know, I've had a book about the two, um, Catherine and about Isabel, and I've been sitting in my bookshelf shelf back at home for like years now. Uh, I've been out of reading. Yeah, no, you've showed it. You've showed it to me. I'm like, when are you going to get around to that? I'm like, <laughs> like when I'm we finish like, the podcast. Well, now you can because we're getting past Woo! the lifetime. But, yeah, it, but it's, it's, back in it, it's in Australia. <laughs> so. Yeah, I have a few books like that where I'm like, damn it, I wish I brought that along to Scotland. Yeah. Okay, so four surviving children, six point seven point points. So there's a total Beyond Throne score of fourteen point six. Which is none too shabby. Yeah, none too shabby at all. Now, would you like to hear Charles the Sixth final score? Very anticipated yes, moment. Fifty three point six. Not too bad. Not too bad. He's beaten John the Second. <laughs> Yay! He's not beaten his father, uh, Charles the Fifth. He got fifty nine. But still, he's in the 50s, which is quite impressive, to be honest. It is. Um, it is. Yeah, he, he he didn't have zero points in any round, which nice. maybe because you're rather generous. <laughs> yep. But yeah, so with, with that said, now we come to the hardest question of all. Yeah. Is he fascinating enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, to go through to the Battle Royale Championship, and to be spared the guillotine. I really want to give it to him, but I feel as though I can't. Mm-hmm. Like, I really want But at the same time, I don't want to guillotine him. Didn't we have one person who we didn't guillotine, but we just kind of let them sit off in the side, but they weren't yes, entirely tawny? Yes, that was John the First, the baby king. Can we do that for him as well? Like, spare him, but not have him in the tournament? Yeah, he he'd be too sick in the tournament. Please, he can look after baby John. <laughs> I don't know if you would. Well, not look after, after, but like, baby. yeah, actually no. But I mean, he can be like, you know. But he gets to be lucid. Yeah, that's yeah. why he can. He gets a special seat in the the sands. I'm gonna annoy you, Eliza, but I think he should be guillotined <laughs> for the times that he was sane. But didn't impress for me. Oh. But we can always flip a coin to decide if you want to get a, a coin, coin out. Yes, I got a yen. 
That's how we Okay, so this is a coin to determine whether Charles is guillotined um, or whether he is spared but exempt, similar to John the First. Okay, ten is he's killed, and palace is he's exempt. Once again, we are using Japanese coins. (laughs) There is no heads in our French podcast. (laughs) Yay! The palace wins. Um, okay. <laughs> the yen loves me. Yen for all I know, because I can't see this, for all I know, Eliza's just rigged this and is lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I was lying, you would have seen me for a split second pause and be like, oh, yay. But since there's that instant yes. Eliza, you're incapable of lying. I have known you for a while. <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> that I know. The, this whole podcast could be a lie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're doing like Matrix vibes there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Inception. Good movie. So that is King Charles the Sixth. He has been exempted from the yeah. process. <laughs> he gets to have a little bucket of popcorn. He, he's in his own little sort of um infirmary tent, tent i guess oh yeah. he's in his own little tent of his little popcorn he's just like peering out the window watching as he eats his little popcorn yeah and every now and then blanche of castile or eleanor of aquitaine kind of checks on him to see how he's doing yeah um. <laughs> yeah 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 they just give him a little checkup that's it mm-hmm. and his tent is in the shape of a giant skirt he's oh it. yes <laughs> the eleanor and blanche totally designed that together Oh yeah, Fredegund's like, I think it should have knives dangling from the ceiling. And they're like, no, Fredegund, you're not getting involved in this. Yeah, they're like, you know what he's like. It'd be too dangerous for him. <laughs> and she's like, oh, but, but, but Fredegund's like, like what if we added some pyrotechnics? And they're like, no. <laughs> like, stay away from the fire and the sharp objects. Shut it's up, Fredegund. Don't give him ideas. God. I know you're in the VIP box, but just stay in your lane. Oh, <laughs> Let him enjoy his popcorn in peace. So that is the episode of uh, the much anticipated episode of, yes. of Charles the Sixth of France. We're getting into a very different episode next episode. Well, we'll do Joan of Arc. Oh, I thought and we we're gonna talk about different episode when you meant Charles the Seventh, and I was like, oh, there's been so much controversy. Well, yes, and then a- after that, we're gonna do Charles the Seventh, and it's gonna be a a. A fiery episode, I think. Oh, good. He's a very controversial ruler um, among historians. Everything I'm reading about him, it's like completely different opinions from all kinds of historians. It's going to be a difficult episode to write, I'll be honest. (laughs) Yeah, because all the hints I've heard from you guys, I've been like, "Mm." Yeah, it's very tricky. But we'll finally be getting to the end of the Hundred Years' War in his episode, so... Finally. Oh, it's been so long. I, no, I feel like the French must have felt, I just want to get out. <laughs> <laughs> I just want, to, just want to move on to the Renaissance. Yes. Yeah, so we'll get to that. But uh, next episode is Joan of Arc, so get Ooh. excited. It's going to be fun. She's my favourite. Oh, two favourites in a row. Two favourites in a row. And we'll see if she gets in the VIP box, or if she's not as great as, right. as people think. So that is going to be au revoir from me. Goodbye from me.